Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Psalm, Psalm 67. It's uh, on page 481 in the Pew Bible. Very short psalm. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for uh, the blessing of... Uh, the blessing to be in your house. The blessing, oh God, to, to sit at your feet and have you, you teach us. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and to understand such weighty matters as before us that you have given us in your word. Uh, we thank you, oh Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Let me ask you this morning, what, what makes you the most happy? What, what brings you the most joy in your life? Maybe if you're uh, married, maybe time alone with your spouse would be nice. Maybe dinner in a nice restaurant without the kids, that might be a pretty awesome thing. Um, maybe for others it might be, it'd be great to have a vacation, just to have a chance to rest and to get a break. For others, it may be you just would rather sit up in front of a fire and have a good book and sit and read, and that's what you enjoy to do. But one of the things that I am coming convinced of more and more, one of the secrets of the Christian life is that there is a happiness and a joy that God creates in every born-again Christian that surpasses all the joys of this world. And that is the joy of seeing God be glorified. That's the joy of seeing God be glorified, of seeing God display who he is in his saving power to the nations. Um, that's what our song today is. I actually was supposed to speak, uh, or participate, I should say, speak sounds too formal, participate in a, a mission Sunday school class this morning at Heartland Community Church, but because of my cold and and everything I didn't want to spread that I, I wasn't able to be part of that um, but it got me thinking about missions it got me thinking about God's purpose and so I um, so I decided to preach on Psalm 67 now this isn't a very well-known psalm it's not like Psalm 23 or Psalm 1 where you hear uh, you know sermon upon sermon upon sermon on this text as a matter of fact there's not a lot written by commentators on this. I think even Calvin had just a couple of pages of comments on this text. From what I understand, I don't own it, but Luther's whole set of um, uh, commentaries on, on um, the Bible 
he just skips over Psalm 67. Um, so there's not a lot. So I'm very indebted to Dale Van Dyke for a lot of his comments, you know, on this text. But um, but it's still a phenomenal psalm and one that we should consider because our psalm this morning is a prayer for the glory of God and the work of global missions. And if you notice, as you look at this psalm, there's sort of a, a refrain uh, in verse 3 and verse 5. And it's sort of the heartbeat of this psalm. It says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That is the heart drive and the prayer of the psalmist. He wants the peoples of the world to praise God. Um, of course, he didn't have this in his mind because it had not been revealed. But we know that this would be a reference to Revelation when the, the nations would gather before the throne of God one day in heaven to worship and to praise him. And this is the spirit-formed desire in the heart of every maturing believer. I'm not saying that every believer has this drive in their heart right now. Or maybe they do and it's just not experienced. Too often, even as Christians, we find our joy in the things of this world. But, but as the Spirit does His work in our hearts, as uh, He will create a passion for the purpose of Christ, such that we cannot truly be satisfied apart from a participation in the missionary cause of God. J. Campbell White said this, he said, Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world that he came to redeem. In other words, the purpose of our God was to come and to redeem a people for himself. And that's what will bring us pleasure as our lives are in line with what God's purpose is. Well, we can have all the fame and we can have pleasure and riches, but those things, as, 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 Campbell, as White says, is nothing but husk and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. You think about Jesus. Jesus said it was his food, his nourishment, to do the will of his Father. It was his delight. So the men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. But unfortunately, I would say that we're not as strong in this particular aspect of ministry as we ought to be as a church. And that's as much my fault as, as anyone. You know, most of us have never been on a short-term missions trip to a foreign country. Some in this congregation have, and I'm so thankful for those that have. But that's not something that we push. Kirk of the Plains doesn't support any, uh, doesn't have any short-term uh, missions trips. We, there, there's not anyone from our church that we have sent out to the mission field. Um, but the, the drive of this uh, psalm is that we might proclaim the gospel mission that God has. 
And the first thing I want us to see in this psalm is the pattern of gospel mission. The pattern. And there's a request that's made in verse 1. The psalmist prays to God. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Does those words sound familiar? It comes from the Aaronic benediction, doesn't it? From Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. It's the benediction I'm going to give you here in just a little while. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a wonderful blessing. It's probably the, the greatest blessing in all of the world. Because the blessing that God is promising in that ironic benediction is the blessing of the gift of God himself. You know, if you were here at the uh, memorial service last night, thank you for coming, if you were, or if you joined via live stream. Thank you. But, you know, we were looked at and we were reminded that Adam and Eve had that beautiful relationship with God. And, and yet, because of sin, then that relationship was broken. And yet God reestablished that. He, he took care of the sin of his people that we might have a relationship with him once again. So for God to be, to be gracious to you means that God is no longer angry with you because of your sin. It means that you have been reconciled to God by His grace. It means that God doesn't deal with you according to your sin and what it deserves, but according to His love and His mercy and all that they bring. For God to be gracious to you means that God now leans toward you in kindness and love, almost like a mother who bends down to her child uh, with a smiling face to help and to protect and to bless that child. You see, the essence of God's blessing, the sort of the, the climactic evidence of his blessing is that his face will shine upon us. Now that's not a term that we use an awful lot in our day and time, but the shining of God's face represents the nearness of God not nearness in the sense of a holy fear of we're terrified before God, but the loving, engaged commitment of God to care for his children and to bless us. It is the reality that if God is for us, who can be against us? If, if God be with us, of whom shall we be afraid? The shining face of God means that God in his glory and his goodness and his compassion and his faithfulness and his omnipotent power and infallible wisdom and infinite love is for us. Now, brothers and sisters, I, you know, I'm preparing this sermon this week and, you know, we just got back uh, from a whirlwind tour out east where we traveled across three states to, to, to do a funeral and back in just a, a couple of days and then did a baptism and then came home and uh, to find our house flooded with water that had overflowed um, and destroyed some stuff on our main floor, went into our basement, destroyed some stuff there as well. And, uh, and I could use that example because I have permission to use that example. But I know that many of you have similar things that have happened to you 
this week as well, but I don't have your permission, so I'm not going to share your story. Okay, so I'm not trying to um, one up on saying my things are harder than yours. I'm not saying that. But I know that many are going through difficult times. But, you know, even in those difficult times, and you can look at this and it's easy to say, oh, why did this happen to me? Or, you know, really, we needed a flood on top of a funeral, on top of all the other things that we've been doing this month. And yet, as I think about this, and I think God in, in His glory and His goodness, in His compassionate, in His faithfulness, in His infinite love, I see that as we walk through all those things. That even though the circumstances of life are, are very difficult, I, I see God's goodness. I mean, uh, our kids stopped over to check on our house on something completely unrelated and found this water and were able, and they spent hours like digging our stuff out so it wasn't destroyed. You know, God is good. Um, you know, it was maybe tough to do a baptism and a funeral and all that kind of stuff in a week when we thought we were getting away on vacation and it really ended up being a work week and stuff. And But, you know, it was a blessing that we were able to do all that and, and to see family and, and things. You know, God is good. Even in those difficult times, He is always there with us to go through those things with us. And so God gave these words to Aaron and commanded Aaron to speak them over the people. It is God Himself saying to this people, this is what I will do for you. This is who I am towards you. All this you can expect from me, your Savior and your God. And since God himself has promised these things, we are encouraged to pray this prayer that God would bless us. We have warrant to ask for these things because God has promised you that he will be your shield, that he will be your refuge, that he will be your shepherd, that he will be your rock, that he will be your helper and your provider. Bless me with all the blessings of your gracious bounty, O oh God. Bless me with the treasures of your goodness. Bless me with the material and physical, relational, and spiritual riches. Now, at this point in time, you may say, Pastor Rick, you sound like a prosperity gospel preacher. You know? Um, but doesn't God's word say every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights? There are no blessings to be had apart from God. So should we not pray to Him for those things? You see, every good gift that an unbeliever receives comes from his hand. Every good gift we enjoy comes from him and him alone, from God. The blessings of life are not like a, a, a shopping spree where you go to Dylan's and you buy a few things and go to Aldi's and buy something else and then you go to Sam's Club or Costco and buy the bulk of all the things you want to buy. You know, it's not like that. There's only one source of blessing in this world and that is God himself. And every single good thing you have in your life, whether it's your health or your family, or your friends, or your intelligence, or your skills, or your hobbies, or your, or, or your homes, or your children, whatever it is, every single blessing comes from God. And we are free to ask Him to give them. And that's what the psalmist is doing in verse 1, praying for that. 
Now here again, you may still feel uncomfortable and say, Pastor Rick, you still sound like a prosperity gospel preacher. Lord, just bless me. But let's move on to verse 2. Because the first word in verse 2 is very important. Maybe even the most important word in the whole psalm. That. That. In verse 2, it's a conjunction. It it, it signals the purpose of why we're praying for blessing. The blessings prayed for in verse 1 have a a designated goal, a purpose, an intent. There's a reason why we pray for blessing. That your way, that God's way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. In other words, may God be gracious to me and bless me so that I might be a part of God's saving mission. That's why we're praying for blessing. May God be gracious to me and bless me so that my life may in some way make God's ways known on the earth. I don't know if you think about this. I think sometimes Christians don't realize this. But God has blessed us in a way. As I said before, it doesn't mean that Christians don't go through hard times. We do. But there are blessings in the relationships that we have. You know, our marriages aren't perfect. But oftentimes they are on a different level than the world. We're not going from one partner to another partner to another partner seeking to find love and intimacy. And God has given us the blessing of marrying one person for life and enjoying that person through the ups and the downs. Uh, God has blessed us in in the friendships and, and the church family that we have, that when we go through those difficult times, we're not left all alone with our troubles wondering, what do I do? We actually have somebody that we can pick up the phone and we can call day or night and say, I'm going through this difficult time. Can you help me? And that person will be there. Because of the love that Christ is working in, the, in his people to love one another. Oh, we are blessed brothers and sisters in a way that the world doesn't understand. And the, and the world marvels. It, it may throw rocks at us. And the world may criticize us and may speak down on the church or on God. Or whatever, but when they look and they see what God's people have, as they walk humbly with their God, they want that. And we can be a witness to the world. The blessings that we are given, though, are to be a witness to the world around us. And that's quite a radical thought for consumeristic American Christians, even. You know, we tend to assume that the intended purpose of blessing, which God gives to us, is our own enjoyment of them I mean let's just be frank don't we sometimes ask God to bless us with our marriage because we want to have a happy marriage we're really not thinking about witnessing to other people we just want to have a good marriage or we want to have kids to behave or we want to have a life that is satisfying and we believe that God wants the same thing turn to 1st Timothy Chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, uh, Paul says um, that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? Now, now keep stay there, First uh, Timothy. Um, so isn't our enjoyment the true and proper end of God's gifts? I mean, that's what it says 
and God's word? And, and the answer is yes and no. Don't you like that? Yes and no. Um, it all depends on what you mean by enjoyment. You know, if you mean a selfish, consumeristic, self-serving, purely this world oriented type of enjoyment, then the answer is no. If you mean by enjoyment only what the world means, then the answer is no. But you see, the deeper question is, what sort of enjoyment does God intend for us when he richly provides us with his good and perfect gift? Well, look down at verses 18 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6. Um, Paul shows us what kind of enjoyment he has in mind. He said, they are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, the enjoyment God intends when he richly provides his gift is the enjoyment of being a channel of grace, being a channel of grace to others. We're not meant to be a cul-de-sac. We're not meant to be a channel of grace that all comes to me in my cul-de-sac and I just keep it. We're to be like a pipe that it flows through us to other people around us as well. I think about Israel, and you've heard me say this before, but Israel is a very tiny country. But if you look at where God placed Israel in, in the map of all the world powers, that little strip of land in Israel was the key place. Everybody in the world had to travel through Israel to get to anywhere. Why did God place his people there? So that they might be that witness. That they might be that channel of grace. That as the nations came to them, as they traveled through their country, that they might have contact with God's people to see the ways of God. You see, the deepest joy to be gained in God's gifts is not the joy of consuming but the joy of sharing. More specifically, the greatest joy to be gained is not the joy of investing in, in temporal or passing things, but investing those gifts and abilities in eternal things. And more specifically yet, it's, it's not the joy of feeding ourselves or clothing ourselves or satisfying ourselves. All those things are, are not bad in and of themselves. They can be good, but the ultimate joy of blessing is to be found where the greatest purpose is found. And that purpose is found in verse 2. That your way, that God's way may be known on earth. Your saving power among the nations. That's what God wants us to see. That he is here to redeem a people to himself. And he is calling us as his people to be part of that. And he's calling us to pray that we might be blessed. That through that blessing that we might be a witness to others. You see, the concern in the mind of the author of this psalm is that much of the world doesn't know the saving ways of God. People are out there living in colossal spiritual darkness. They may know that God exists, but they may not know the ways of God. They may not know who he truly is. They don't know his promises to Adam and to Eve to send someone to crush the head of the serpent. They don't know the promises that God made to Abraham, the father of the nations. They don't know God's saving power revealed in rescuing Israel from bondage. 
They don't know the baby born to a virgin in Bethlehem. They've never heard of Jesus. His miracles, his truth, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection. They don't know that God justifies the wicked by grace through faith. They don't know that they can call upon the name of Jesus and be brought from death to life, from darkness to eternal life. They don't know. And this is the crisis of the author of this psalm. And this, brothers and sisters, should be our greatest crisis in the world in which we live. It, sure, it surely was for the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was grieved by the devastated spiritual ignorance of, of his day. He was surrounded by people and nations who didn't know God. And, and how could they? And so, so Paul writes to the Romans and he says in Romans 10, 14, and 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? How can the nations know? How can the nations and the peoples of the world know? The ways of God unless someone goes to tell them. The, the Joshua Project, you may have heard of that. They estimate that there's like 5,000 people groups in the world today who don't know Christ. Uh, with, well, I should say they have 0.1% or fewer Christians of any kind in, in those people groups. With no evidence of self-sustaining gospel movement. So these people represent, just to give you an idea, 1,976,018,000 people. In other words, a fourth of the world uh, uh, have almost no chance in it of hearing Jesus from someone within their own people group. So how are these people going to hear about Christ? How will they learn the saving ways of God? How will they hear about God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life? How will they know unless someone goes to tell them? The second thing I want us to see is, is the goal of gospel missions. The goal of gospel missions. Look at verses 3 through 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Uh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So this is a robust prayer for the nations to be glad in God. For the nations to praise God. And, and these verses are actually the focal point of the whole psalm. Verses 3 and 5 are exactly alike, as I said earlier. And they create what is known in Hebrew literature as an inclusio. Okay, um, the best way I can think maybe to describe it is they're like bookends. And, and they're sort of highlighting uh, something in the middle. And so verse 4 is sort of like the, the key to the, the whole psalm. And, and, and what it is, is it's, it's saying that the message of good news of Jesus Christ would be spread through the nation. That these verses are a prayer that, that the rule of God 
would be known by the nations. That they would come to understand that God rules in, in equity. And eventually they would see as the Messiah comes that the message of the good news of Christ would be spread through the nations such that those who once were enemies of God, wanting nothing to do with him, would now be not only reconciled to him, but would worship him with gladness and joy. I think it would not be too much of a stretch to say it's really saying that the purpose is, or the focus here is, that the nations would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Notice the emphasis on you. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. You see, the, the ultimate goal of world missions is not that sinners be saved. I know that may sound strange. That's not the goal that sinners would be saved. The ultimate passion of world missions is that God be glorified in the salvation of sinners. You see, I think that the American gospel has um, sort of uh, been uh, reduced to this idea of sinners being saved. That that's what salvation is about. And so what happens is, is people hear this gospel message as if it is a sense of God is only dealing with my sin. But what I would, like I was trying to sort of convey in the, the memorial message uh, yesterday afternoon is that really what God was doing in forgiving us of our sins was to reestablish a relationship with God. That that's what was the most important was that we have this relationship with God. And because people don't understand that oftentimes, you have people walking around who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. My sins are forgiven, my sins are forgiven, my sins are forgiven. And you ask them about their relationship with God, and they say, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Or at least there's no clear evidence that there's any sense of relationship with God. Any joy in being in His presence. Any sense of repentance over their sin. And, and, and a seeking of holiness. Because they think that salvation is only for the purpose of saving sinners. Rather than saving sinners who would glorify God in the salvation that they have received. Do you see the difference? I hope I can uh, make that clear. Paul, Paul talks about this. Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 5. Uh, Paul is sort of summarizing his missionary calling. In Romans chapter 1. Verse 5, it sort of starts in the beginning of the sentence, I'm sorry. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, why did they receive this grace and this, this apostleship, this, this calling to be a messenger of God? He says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. It wasn't just for the forgiveness of sins. But it was uh, for the changing of the hearts of those people to walk in obedience for the sake of God's name among the nations. John Stott uh, says, The highest of all missionary motives is not merely obedience to the Great Commission. I mean, it is important that we keep the Great Commission as a church. But that's not the, the main motivating force. He said, nor is it love for sinners who are alienated and perishing. Although that is a strong motive as well that we ought to have 
We ought to have compassion for those that don't know Christ. But he said, rather the highest of all missionary motives is zeal. It is a burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And before this supreme goal, all other Christian motives are found unworthy and they wither and die. And so the author says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy in verse 4. Why? Or maybe I should say when. When they come to know the ways of God, when they come to hear and to believe His saving power. That brings us to the third point, the promise of the gospel mission. In verses 6 and 7, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Now, this is a little challenging to interpret. It's sort of interesting because all the, the other uh, verbs are sort of pointing to the future. This is the only place where it's sort of past tense. The earth has yielded uh, its increase. Um, and commentators sort of disagree, okay? But I think Mark Futado in his commentary makes a a very interesting point. He said uh, in verse 6, this actually should be translated as a future. The earth will yield its increase. And you're like, okay, how can you make it say the opposite of what it says in my Bible, right? Okay, but what he argues is it's a prayer for future events. Um, excuse me. It's a prayer for a future event, but said with such conviction and confidence that it's spoken as if it's already happened. And we see that in the New Testament too as well. Sometimes Jesus will say things and it will be in the past tense because it is so certain that it will happen. And that's what the author is saying here. And I think that's the right uh, interpretation of this. That the earth will yield its increase. That God will bless us. He will bless us to the end that all the ends of the earth will fear him. And the psalmist is absolutely confident that all this is, will happen. But based on what? Well, if you look at the wording there, it's rooted in God's promise to Abraham. Remember God's promise to Abraham, I will bless you and make you a blessing to the nation. And you see that reflected in these verses. And of course, the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham is the coming of Jesus Christ who is Abraham's seed. And God's purpose from the very beginning was to bless all the nations of the world through Jesus. And so the mission given to the church is to go and to tell them. Now, I read a quote this week by Christopher Wright uh, who said, uh, and listen carefully to this. He said, Jesus did not give a mission to his church. Jesus did not give a mission to his church. And you go, wait a minute, Pastor Rick. We have the great commission that was given to us. But listen to what he says. He goes, Jesus did not give a mission to his church. He formed a church for his mission. He formed a church for his mission. You know, you hear churches say this all the time. Well, God gave us this mission, and this is how our church is doing this. It's almost like the Lord has given us the marching orders, and we're going to figure out how to fulfill this. 
And I think what, what Christopher Wright is getting at is no, God has a mission of what he's doing in redeeming a people for himself. And it's not just that he gave us a mission to go do it. He is forming us as his people to be the instruments through which he carries out his mission through us. He goes on to say, he goes, without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. I can't think of anything more important for the church to recover than its missional essence. And I'd love to see us, brothers and sisters, as Kirk of the Plain, to be much more intentional about gospel missions. Not just out there overseas, but even here at home as well. And also around the world. It, it, it's my prayer that we would be a Psalm 67 church a place where our greatest joy is to see the nations rejoicing God. And so would you join me uh, this year uh, to pray Psalm 67, to pray this psalm for our church, that, 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 that the fire of this mission, that, that, that we as a people would be living our lives uh, not confined to the desires and the joys of this world, uh, and even the gifts that God gives us in these. May our hearts not be set upon those, but may our hearts be set upon our glorious, transcendent God that is doing a mighty work in this world and redeeming a people to himself. And may we be participants of that. As a church, as families, as individuals. And let's see what the Lord will do. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon this word preached today. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you challenge us in ways that we may not think. Uh, we love you, Lord. We, we want to serve you. God, I don't question the faith of, of anyone here who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for this congregation. But the reality is, Lord, we can get so caught up in the things of our life and, and the things that we think are so important that God, sometimes we sort of forget your bigger purpose. And I come before you today, God, guilty of that. And in and many ways condemned by this, this passage that my thinking has become too much like the world and too tied to the world. Oh God, but may you expand our vision. May you help us as your people to live in light of eternity. Uh, God, to seek that you might be glorified upon in this world. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that you would bring to mind to pray uh, Psalm 67 a lot for our church. But also, Lord, I pray that you would help us to pray this week expectantly. Father, for opportunities um, to share Christ. Uh, God, in the way that we live, may those prayers for, for a witness uh, be prayers to pray for holiness in our own lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters. That God, that people would see us 
as your children. We're not perfect. But as people who are redeemed, people who are blessed, may they see the ways of God lived out in the lives of your people. But Lord, also, would you give us opportunities to share Christ with others and give us a boldness and, and a love for you, Lord, that, that supersedes any fear of what we think other people might think of us, uh, that we might share the hope that is in us. We thank you, O oh Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.